All right, well, I want to say uh, happy uh, birthday, Hope Church, and uh, I would especially just like to recognize if you were there on September 27th, 2009, uh, I know Josh, our sound guy, was six years old back then, uh, but it, it, if, if you were there uh, at that first service, I just want to give you an opportunity. Could you just stand so we can thank you for putting up with us for all of this time? So, so good to have you here. Praise the Lord. That's so great. That's so great. You know, as we've been doing life together as a church, it, it, it's been like we're on a journey. I remember the first time driving in a major city outside Toronto. Uh, Lindsay and I were newlyweds. This is back in 2003, and we had the opportunity. We were invited to go to a conference in Chicago, and I remember, you know, toll roads and express lanes and bus lanes and east and west and north and south, and everything was so confusing, and all of these on-ramps and, and off-ramps, and, and we, we made it to Chicago, and then before we knew it, we we were, we were in Wisconsin, and we, we, we were in another state, and, and we found ourselves on a, our only option. We've, somehow, we were on this on-ramp, about to go on a toll road. There was no way to back up. It was one of these American tolls where you had to throw, there was no attendant. You just had to throw coins into the thing, and we had no American coins, so we're just like throwing Canadian money and paper clips and chiclets in there, and, and there were those... those you know those metal things that come out of the, out of the, the road when you sort of break the laws? So or we, we had to drive past one of those. We're just like, throw the chiclets in and drive. You know, it's, it can be intimidating when you drive to, to a new place. You're trying to make sense of all of the signs. You're trying to keep your, your sense of direction. Maybe there's, maybe there's construction. Maybe there's, maybe there's a, a, a sign or an instruction in your directions that doesn't quite make sense. And you, you sometimes come to these moments, these crossroads, where you've never been before. You're, you're, you know ultimately where you're trying to get to, but you're not sure how to get there. You're, you're firm on the, on the general direction, but you're confused about how do we achieve our objective? How do we get to where we want to go in light of everything that's happening in front of us? Loved ones, right now I believe that our church and really every church on planet earth finds themselves at a crossroads. We, we find, we know, we understand the general direction. We know where we're headed. We know what we're after, but there's a lot that's coming at us. There's a lot of decisions that need to be made. These are confusing and conflicting times with multiple agendas and, and multiple motives. There's lots of confusion in our time. We're looking for direction. Which way do we go? Do we turn here or not? Do we get off on this exit or not? We're at a crossroads. A crossroads between truth and lies between the spirit and flesh, between acting out of love towards my neighbor or selfish desires for myself, seeking approval from God or applause from the culture, from pursuing unity or asserting my individualism, to keep going or to quit, to follow Jesus or to follow the world. 
Loved ones, in the 12-year history of our church, we, we've come to a lot of crossroads. I gotta be honest, a lot of times we found we were at the end side of the road with no gas. A couple of times we were right in the ditch. A few times, I know for myself personally, I was like in reverse going in the totally wrong direction. But God has been faithful to keep us on track. And we're trusting him to continue to keep us on track. And as we're seeking God's face together as a church family, while we find ourselves at this crossroads, I want us to have our eyes focused on God. The title for today's message is God is Faithful. And we're going to begin really a, a quite a long study in the book of 1 Corinthians. The, the church at Corinth was, was at a sort of a crossroads moment themselves. Were they going to go with the ways of the world or were they going to go on following Jesus Christ? So we're going to go verse by verse, word by word, line by line through the book of 1 Corinthians. But before we get to 1 Corinthians, I want you to turn to where it all started in the book of Acts. So turn with me to Acts chapter 18 and verse 1. I want to lay a bit of a foundation in terms of getting a little bit of background to what was happening in Corinth, how Paul started the church. So here we are, Acts chapter 18, the year is about A.D. 51, and Paul is on his second missionary journey. He was in Athens, which is just north of Corinth, and then we read in Acts 18 verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews leave Rome. And so, anti-Semitism existed even then. All the Jewish people were expelled by Rome. This was a government mandate to get rid of all the Jewish people. So they came to Corinth. Verse 3 says, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul and Priscilla and, and, and Aquila, they made tents together. That's how they earned their living. Then it says in verse 4, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. So now there's like this dream team leadership. You've got Paul, you've got Timothy, Silas, Priscilla, and Aquila. They're all, they're all serving in the leadership team on uh, at this church in Corinth. Verse 6 says, when they, opposed and when, they, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on you and on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul had been going to the synagogue every week, reasoning with them, convincing them that Jesus was the Christ. They didn't believe him. Eventually, they started reviling him and opposing him. So Paul shook the dust off, off his sandals and said, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Where does he go? Verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> so Paul's like, I'm out of here. He leaves the synagogue door and then he just goes into Titius Justice right next door. Talk about a strategic outpost. Check out what happens next. Verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. 
So Paul moves next door. Meanwhile, as, as the guy who's in charge of the synagogue is seeing the way Paul is loving with people and seeing the way that Paul is teaching from the Old Testament and making the connections about who Jesus is, the ruler of the synagogue gets saved. Just picture that. Just, just picture any mom at a mosque in, in, in Mississauga. Just all of a sudden deciding, you know what, I'm a, I'm a fall. Imagine the, the, the ripple effect that would have in the, in the community. That's what, that's what took place here. It's incredible. It says that his entire household believed in verse 8, and many of the Corinthians, Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God looked out at Corinth and he, he reminded Paul, I have many in the city of Corinth who are my people. God wanted Paul to stay there, to keep ministering there. It says that he stayed there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's like the province, Corinth is the city, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Verse 17. And they, these are the Jewish people that were trying to attack Paul, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Why would they beat Sosthenes, the ruler of the, of the, of the synagogue? Well, chances are, just like Crispus, Sosthenes, the, 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 the replacement ruler of the synagogue, has also become a Christian. We just see this abundant fruitfulness of gospel ministry here. So they beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So this is, this is the establishment. This, was the, the, this is the first year and a half of a church in the city of Corinth. Now we come to the book of 1 Corinthians. About two years have gone by. Paul is writing from Ephesus. And we're having our 12-year anniversary. They're having their two-and-a-half-year anniversary at this point. And Paul is writing to this church. They find themselves at a crossroads. And he, he wants to remind them of three things that I think are really important for us to think of. This is the standard introduction to any Roman letter, whether it's a biblical letter or not, Roman letters always began in the same way, with, with a little bit of, a, a little bit of a, an introduction and then a thanksgiving. It, you always had those, those two things, a greeting and then, and then a, a, an expression of thankfulness. And that's what, that's what Paul does here as well. Verses 1 to 3, is, that's his greeting. And then verses 4 to 9, that's him expressing his thanksgiving. And it's in this greeting and in, in his thanksgiving, he, he reminds the church at Corinth some things about God and some things about them. 
And he uses, he doesn't just wait, he doesn't just go through the motions. This isn't just a formality of this is how you're supposed to start a letter. He capitalizes on this opportunity to encourage them about, about who God is and who they are. Here's the, here's the first thing he wants to remind them of. And if we're going to get through this crossroad moment where we find ourselves, uh, we're, we would be wise to uh, follow what Paul shares here. He wants to remind them when they come to a crossroads, he wants to remind them of this, that a holy God has called us to be saints. A holy God has called us to be saints. He begins with his own name. Normally the way we write letters is we begin with the name of the people that we're writing to, but not so uh, in those days. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Remember Sosthenes? He was the guy that got beat up. And this is, so chances are he is. He was a Christian. He, he, and so now Paul's gone. Priscilla and Aquila is gone. And Sosthenes is gone. So that, that dream team of, of, of a leadership team is, is no longer there. And Paul is, is writing to them. So they find themselves at a crossroads. Before when they came to a crossroads, they said, they said hey Paul, what do we do? But now Paul's not there. And so they've been sending correspondence back and forth to Paul trying to get answers because they, they need to make a decision. They find themselves at, at a crossroads. Notice how Paul calls himself an apostle. An apostle means a sent one. This was a specific group of men who were personally commissioned by the nail-scarred, resurrected Jesus Christ to go and to establish the church. We don't have apostles uh, anymore. It was, it was a, a time-stamped project that Jesus Christ had given to a specific group of individuals. So Paul is reminding them that he was called to be an apostle. Sosthenes is there with him. He, then he says who he's writing to in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. It's the church of God. It's God's church. It wasn't Paul's church. It wasn't Priscilla or Aquila's church. It wasn't Apollos' church. It's God's church. It was the church of God. They were a church, which means called out, gathered out of the world and gathered around Jesus. The church of God in Corinth. Corinth, the church at Corinth and the city of Corinth was at a crossroads. Uh, metaphorically and geographically. Let me show you what I mean here with this map. So here's Corinth. Corinth is on this tiny little, it's called an isthmus, this tiny little strip of land between two bodies of water, just nine kilometers in length. And so you've got Ephesus to the east, Rome to the west. This was a city, this was a major Greek city in the early days of BC, the, 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 the 200 BC or so. It was destroyed by Rome in 146 BC. Julius Caesar ordered that it be rebuilt in 44 BC. So it's a new city. Everything had been torn down. Everything had been rebuilt. It was a new city. It was a Roman colony. It was the capital of the Roman province in that area. It, it, it was sort of the intersection of the old Greek culture and the new Roman culture. But in terms of its geography, it was really, really important 
Because if you wanted to get to Rome from, let's say, Ephesus, you could go the long route around the Peloponnese into the Mediterranean Sea, but that's really dangerous sailing and it would take a really long time. But if you went on land in Corinth, and just traveled by land across nine kilometers, loaded all your cargo into carts, and then got on a different ship on the other side, or the Corinthians had developed these boat carriers on wheels where you, they, they engineered it so you would actually take a ship out of the water, set it on these carts, and they would wheel it nine kilometers to the next harbor. It's literally at a crossroads. If you wanted to get from Athens to the north, to, to the Peloponnese, to the, to the south, if you wanted to get from Ephesus or to Rome, everything went through Corinth. And if you're, if you're shipping your cargo, you're going to have to eat. You're going to have to stop and, and, and get some food. You're, you're going to have to pay the guy that's, that's moving all of your cargo from the one place to the other. You're probably going to want to stop by at a local temple and pray or make a sacrifice to ensure that the rest of your journey is safe. You might even want to spend a night or two in a brothel while you're away from your family. The Corinthians had found every possible way to make money in exploiting people as they made their way through their city. Good and bad. The Corinthians, even, they had their own version of the Olympics called the Isthmian Games. Every two years, all the same, you know, athletics, track and field, but they also had poetry reading. You could win a gold medal in poetry reading. Four years, that's, no, the things move fast in court. Every two years, that's when they had, had their games. This was a place that was filled with wealth, filled with entrepreneurs. There was a competitive environment, cutthroat business deals, all about status and self-promotion and looking out for number one. Corinthians were continually under the allure of materialism and success. The Christians in Corinth were continually trying to fight that draw of becoming like the other people in their city. Continually fighting that battle. They were looked down upon by the other Corinthians. The Christians were looked down upon because they were monotheistic. They were so narrow-minded. I mean, couldn't they believe in, in Diana and Apollos and Poseidon? Why only one God? Why would you only believe in, in one God? And why such a strict moral code? All this business about one man and one woman for one lifetime in and, and marriage. Why, why are you so narrow in your understanding of sexuality or, or of stewardship or whatever it may be? They were looked down upon. And then we already read in Acts chapter 18 what the local Jewish community thought of them. They considered them to be liberal. They, they, they didn't force everyone to be circumcised. They didn't follow the Sabbath or the regular Old Testament calendar. And so here are the Corinthian churches. The, the Greeks looked down on them. The Jewish people looked down on them. They couldn't please anybody, no matter where that they turned. They found themselves at a crossroads. So what does Paul say to this church? This church that belongs to God at Corinth. Look what he says to them. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord. He says that they're sanctified. 
He, he reminds them that they're called to be saints. Remember, this is what the first thing he wants them to know. He wants them to, to, to know that a holy God has called them to be saints. And as the Apostle Paul was writing, the Holy Spirit was inspiring him. So these words not only spoke to that church, they also speak to our church today. And we need to be reminded that a holy God has called us to be saints. Called us to be saints. Sanctified. That means to be set apart, to be made holy. Saints means holy ones. There's the same uh, root word. Jeffrey, if we could skip ahead one slide. Sorry, I'm going a little bit off script here. But the, the, where it says sanct and sanctified, there we go. So this comes from the, really the same Greek uh, root word. Sanctified, hagiazo, saints, hagios. He says, he's, he reminds them that they have been sanctified. Now, normally, the way that we think in terms of theological categories, we, we talk about justification as this once-for-all moment where God declares us innocent from our sin. And then we normally talk about sanctification sort of as a shorthand to describe the, the, the process of becoming holy in our lives. But notice what Paul says here. He uses sanctified not as a process. He doesn't put sanctification he puts sanctified. He describes it as past tense. Now, justification is always past tense. But sometimes in the New Testament, sanctification is used in a past or present or in future. And this is one of those cases. So there's a, there's a sanctification that is progressive. We see that in the New Testament. But there's also a sanctification that is positional. This is who we are. This is what God has done for us. To be a saint, to be a holy one, comes by an act of God. Notice how it says who, who is responsible for making us sanctified. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Do you see it there? It's because of what Jesus has done. Jesus was the only sanctified one. He was the only one set apart for God because he was God. But when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, he made it possible for us who are sinners to be set apart from our sin and set apart wholly onto God. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. We are invited to live out our identity. And so often, loved ones, when we come to a crossroads, before we ask, which way should I go? The question we have to ask first is, who am I? We so often just want to know, which way do I turn? Do I go this way or do I go that way? And we miss the most important question. We need to know who we are. Because if we understand who we are, then it will be really clear which way we should go. And that's where Paul begins. He says, you have been sanctified. That's who you are. You are called to be saints. That's who you are. You are to be holy. It doesn't matter if the Greeks look down on you. It doesn't matter if the Jewish people who have rejected the Messiah look down on you. You belong to God. You are holy. You are set apart so you don't fit in. You don't fit in. You won't be able to make these groups happy because you belong to God. You don't belong to this world. That's our positional sanctification. Also notice what he says. We're called to be saints together. Together. In an entrepreneurial, individ individ individualistic city like Corinth, 
the Christians there could fall into that trap of thinking that it's all up to me, it's all about me. They could see the Christian life as a competition against other Christians. And Paul reminds them, he says, no, we are called to be saints, not as individuals, called to be saints together. He has called us into a family, people that look different than us, talk different than us, make more money or less money than we do, have different political views than we do. We are called to be saints, called to be holy together. And not only are we called into a local church, but it it goes on here to say that we are called together with those who in every place Not just local, but universal, even global. Those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Corinth was a happening place. Everyone wanted to be in Corinth. It was influential. But he was reminding them, hey, listen, listen, your city's really great. There's a lot of good things going on. But it's not about where you're from. It's about who you belong to. And don't, don't think that you're somehow superior to, to Ephesus or, or to, uh, to uh, Macedonia or to, or to any of these other places. No, we are all called together. We all belong together. And then he offers them in verse 3, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers them grace, the grace that sanctified them. He, he, he says, may you continue to have that grace. May God give you grace every day as you come to these crossroads decisions, as you try to figure out how to best honor the Lord in every situation and circumstance. May God give you grace. And as you struggle and as you debate about it, even within the church, as you have disagreements, may you have peace. He offers them grace and peace as he so often does in his letters. You see, loved ones, this is what uh, the Corinthian church was, uh, was up against. We can go back to that conflict and compromise slide. Jeffrey, sorry, I ended up changing the order here as I'm going. As we study the book of 1 Corinthians, we're, we're going to see that, that this church family was facing conflict within the church. They were having arguments. I mean, the whole beginning of the whole first four chapters is about divisions. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I want to go this way. I want to go that way. They they were taking each other to court. They were having lawsuits. Brothers and sisters in Christ. They they were having separate versions of the Lord's Supper. A wealthy version and a poor version. And they were misusing the spiritual gifts that God had given them. There was all kinds of division in the church. This church that so desperately needs grace and peace. They were also facing compromise with the world. Compromise about seeking the world's wisdom, trying to be eloquent, trying to be wise according to the ways of this world. That's what Corinth was all about. And the church was struggling with that. Compromise in terms of sexuality in chapter 6. Marriage and singleness in chapter 7. Food, sacrificed idols. Again, in the culture, what do we do with that as Christians? And then head coverings, expressions of of masculinity and femininity and husband and wife, culturally speaking, there was a temptation to compromise in all of these areas. And loved ones, what we're going to see, 
He says, grace, in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go through this letter, as we dive into all of these topics, I know right now we're not having a lot of disagreements about food sacrificed to idols or about head coverings. I know, we do, I know we don't have like a rich person communion service and then a poor person communion service. I know we don't have any of these specific problems right now, but the principles behind these problems are very real for us today. And we are in desperate needs of, of God's grace and God's peace in order to make the best use of the time that God has given us and to make the right turns as we come to this time of, of uh, we come to our crossroad moment. And loved ones, what we're going to find, we're going to see it all throughout this letter, we even see it in these nine verses, that Paul is continually pointing them to Jesus. That when we come to a crossroads, if we actually come to the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, we will find power to resolve every conflict and to refuse every compromise. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we have the power to resolve every conflict and to refuse every compromise. And that's, that's what the whole book of 1 Corinthians is about. The cross and how looking to the cross will help us get through conflict and compromise in our lives. So that's point one. That was a long one because I need to sort of lay the foundation. These next two are going to come quite quick. Here's number two. A gracious God has given us gifts. So a holy God has called us to be saints. And secondly, a gracious God has given us gifts. Now we get into his thanksgiving part. Verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, a gracious God, has given us gifts. Again, these, these, these points here, these are not just my ideas. If you read verses 4 to 9, you see the word grace and you see the word gift. If you read verses 1 to 4, you see the word saint, that we're called, we're sanctified. We're, these, are, these are not my ideas. I'm just simply taking what God's word says here and trying to summarize it in a way for us to be able to digest so Paul says to this church that he gives thanks, and he says he gives thanks always. That's a great habit to have, to have the habit of thankfulness. We are living in such crazy times where, where the things that we used to take for granted, the things that we used to assume, like going to work or going to, going to church or getting takeout or going to the grocery store or sitting in a restaurant or going to the gym, these things that used to be normal are no longer normal. And brain power, energy that we used to do, our brain was just turned off when we went to the grocery store because we never thought. Now, I still, every time I feel like I'm going to rob the place, I'm walking in, I'm putting on a mask, I just, it just feels so weird, doesn't it? And now so much mental energy is being spent on things we never would spend mental energy on before. Because we used to just, we used to just go to the store. We used to just go to church. And now we're trying to think, am I sitting in the right, the ushers back in the day, ushers used to be like, you want to sit here? Go ahead, just sit here. Now the ushers are like counting and like a measuring tape and, 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 and like, right? Things we didn't have to think about, we're thinking about all the time. Do you, do you understand how exhausting that is? Because our brain now is having to think about all of those things. That we never, our brain used to just be on autopilot in all those situations. 
But every single tiny little, we're at a crossroads. Every single tiny little thing. That could be exhausting. But we can also use those as opportunities for thankfulness. Because loved ones, I mean, some of you, 1 Corinthians uh, is, is, is new. And you're going to be like, oh, there was a church in Corinth. Oh, this is interesting. Although I wonder what this book is about. Others of you know what the book's about. And you read the first few verses and you're like, saints? Hmm. Like, did, did, this, did, this, did this letter end up in the wrong envelope? Because for real, Corinth is the most messed up church. And I mean, let's just be honest. Hope Church, like we can be really thankful. Like the last 12 years have been really amazing and God has been so faithful. But as I said at the beginning, there was a lot of times where we were on the side of the road out of gas. There was a lot of time where a lot of us have been off the ditch. Rolled over, barely hanging on, thankful for seatbelts of God's grace. Needing a tow truck, needing service, needing all of these things. And yet we are called saints. Loved ones, this is not a, if you're, maybe you feel the same way about this church, the way you feel about Corinth. Oh, there's a church here. This seems great. All these people seem really nice. Yeah, welcome. (laughs) We are not a perfect church, but we serve a faithful God. And listen, even in the midst, this is incredible because Paul knew all of this. He had people going back and forth. He was receiving letters, but what was happening in this church and yet he could still be thankful for them. That is a lesson. That the people that, that, that rub us the wrong way or the people that think differently from the way that we think or the people that in our mind don't think at all, that by the grace of God, if we could find a way to be thankful for them, the way Paul was thankful for the church at Corinth. It's an incredible incredible example. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. And he gives, he gives thanks because they've been enriched with spiritual gifts. And then he lists some of them, speech and knowledge. Again, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, speech and knowledge, chapter 12 to 14 was all about how they were misusing speech and knowledge. About speech the gift of tongues and how people were standing up in the middle of church and, and creating a distraction by, by speaking in tongues at the spur of the moment. And Paul's trying to rein them in, saying everything must be done decently and in order. Or knowledge, chapter 8. Not, Paul says, hey, be careful because knowledge puffs up. He knew that they had knowledge. And that knowledge was puffing them up. And yet, even though they were mixed up on knowledge and mixed up on speech, Paul could still find a way to say, this is still, this is operating within the grace of God. God has enriched, this, this church is driving me crazy. And yet, God has given these gifts. And he gives thanks for them. He says that they're not lacking in verse 7. They weren't lacking in any gift. Everything that God wanted to accomplish in Corinth, he had already provided all of the resources and the gifting for that to happen. Here at Hope Church, listen, loved ones, there's a, there's a lot of good things happening, and I know many of us have a, a great deal of dreams and goals and desires to see new things started here at Hope Church. Everything that we need is already here. 
It's already present in the gifted people that God has already brought to our church family. We, just like the church at Corinth, we are not lacking in any of the gifts. The question is, are we using them? Or have we buried our talents in the ground? The word gift and the word grace, these are so uh, intricately linked, linked. The word for grace is charis. The word for gift is charisma. We are given gifts. We don't deserve it. That was one of the problems. This is why Paul's trying to emphasize this. Because people were thinking that because I have the ability to speak in these tongues or, or to prophesy that I'm somehow special, I earned this. No, Paul said, no, no, no. It's a gift. The reason why you're able to do anything for God's glory is because of God's grace. So a gracious God has given us gifts. And then lastly, a faithful God will sustain you to the end. A faithful God will sustain you to the end. He wants to remind them of their identity, that they're saints, that they've been gifted. That's all about identity. And then he wants to remind them about their trajectory or about their destiny. Where are they headed? Going back to verse 7, it says that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the problems of what was happening at at the church in Corinth, is they thought, their, they thought their worship services were so amazing because they had all of these sign gifts going on. They thought, I mean, everything we need is, it was almost as though they were just content with everything that was going on in their church. And they, they weren't waiting. They weren't focused on the return of Christ. Paul, Paul says here, no, as you wait, church is not supposed to be perfect. We we. We know that something more perfect is coming at the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 8, who will sustain you to the end. A faithful God will sustain you. He's going to keep us on the right road. Even if we make wrong turns. Even if we fall into the ditch. Even if we go too fast or too slow or come to a grinding halt because we're, we're just the analysis paralysis and we just can't make a decision of where we're supposed to turn. He will sustain us. He will help us. He will guide us when we come to a crossroads while we wait. Because honestly, I mean, some people who went to church at the church at Corinth must be thinking, like, are we going to make it? Like, this has been a year and a half or two years or so. And I just, I mean, there's sexual sin and there's division and there's false teaching and we're mistreating poor people and the way people are using their gifts seems out of control. Like, is, is the Apostle Paul just going to come and, like, cancel this thing? Like, shut the doors? But again, Paul is confident. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. And how is he going to sustain them? He's going to sustain them. See it there at verse 8? Guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless. I mean... If I were looking over Paul's shoulder, I would just be like, ah, I don't know if I quite use that word. Like, there's a lot of guiltiness. The people you're calling guiltless, there's a lot of guiltiness. You're missing like a, a, a constant, you know, a, a continent and a vowel there. And not guiltless. They seem so guilty. How? How will they be guiltless? Because verse 9, because God is faithful. That is why. Why has our church survived 12 years? Because God is faithful. Say it with me. Why has our church survived 12 years? Because God is faithful. Amen. That's why. How, 
how will we find ourselves guiltless with all that we struggle with? All the insecurities and the fears, all the different times we lapse into sin. How, how will we, on the day of Christ Jesus, how will we be there and be welcome? I mean, believe me, God's done all kinds of things in my life, and I've seen it firsthand in all of our lives, but we're still not guiltless. How is it that we will come before the throne of Christ on that day and be declared guiltless? It will only be because God is faithful. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. In his righteousness, faultless to stand before his throne. You see, God is faithful. Going back to verse, verse 2, remember, he's the one who called the saints. He was the one who initiated. He's the one who began the good work, Philippians 1.6, and he is the one who will carry it to completion. God is faithful. He started it. He'll finish it. Before we made a decision to follow him, he made a decision to be faithful to us. He is faithful. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called. There's that word called again. Called into the fellowship of his son. Called and not just, he didn't just, you know, okay, we're going to save those people over there so that they can live forever. It, it, he called us into relationship, into the fellowship of his son. The, the fellowship with, between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit going all the way back in all of eternity. The three persons of the Trinity. The fellowship that they, that they enjoyed. They're guiltless. They've never sinned. They're holy. And we have been made holy. We are invited into that fellowship, into that relationship. God doesn't want to relate to us as sinners. He wants to relate to us as saints. He wants to welcome us into that fellowship, into that loving relationship. He's not putting up with us. God is faithful and he will sustain us to the end. Paul was getting all kinds of letters and messengers, messengers coming back and forth. He was in Ephesus at the time and, and back and forth from Corinth. And Everyone wanted to talk about Apollos. And everyone wanted to talk about the Lord's Supper. And everyone had questions about marriage. And everyone wanted to know about knowledge and how these things are being, uh, 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 are being used. And uh, different people being puffed up. People had questions about lawsuits. And Paul's like, okay, we can talk about that. I know you want to talk about that. I know you want to talk about that. But Paul's like, I just want you to know that God is faithful. I just want you to know and remind you about Jesus. And loved ones, as a, as a church family... Like we got lots to talk about, don't we? Lots to talk about. About COVID-19 restrictions, about government mandates, about vaccines, about, about race and culture and identity and all of the, we've got, a, we've got a lot to talk about. And like Paul, Paul is going to talk about all of those things. First Corinthians is really just a question and answer about what the church wanted to talk about. We want to talk about all those things, but we will not talk about anything unless we are talking about it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross of Jesus Christ where we find the power to resolve every conflict and to refuse every compromise. And let me show you something that just absolutely blew my mind as I was studying this passage. 
I, I didn't really re- realize it until late, so I'm not going to show you until sort of the very end here. But when we think about God as faithful and how Paul is really going to set everything up, it's all going to go through the lens of the cross. Everything is going to be about Jesus. Yeah, we'll talk about all these things, but it has to be through the gospel. It has to be through the cross. The cross must inform our understanding of all of these things. Take a look at this passage and look at all the references to Jesus Christ. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place are called upon the name, say it with me, of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of the Lord lift up your voice Jesus Christ God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord amen nine verses nine references to Jesus Christ Christ. Paul is setting the tone here. Yeah, you got a lot of questions. Yeah, I have a lot of concerns. Yeah, we're going to address all of these things, but nothing will be addressed without acknowledging the lordship and saving and sanctifying power of Jesus Christ. Our God is faithful. He has sent us a savior. Let's pray together. Our heavenly father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have a savior I thank you that in Jesus Christ we have an answer, Lord, to every problem that we face personally, to every struggle that we have as a community, Lord, to every ill and evil and vice in our culture, to every lie that is going about in our world, Lord, you have the truth. And so, Father, I pray that as we as we navigate these difficult times in which we are living, as we come to these overlaying, multiple overlapping crossroads in our lives and in the life of our church, Lord, I pray that we would be resolved, like Paul said, to know nothing but Jesus Christ to know nothing but his cross. It doesn't mean that we ignore what's going on. It doesn't mean that we cover our eyes or stop our ears, but that We view everything that we see, every decision that we make, every issue that we face, that we would view it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would prove yourself to be so faithful as you have proven, Lord, in the last 12 years, God. As we think about the next 12 years, as we think about the next 12 minutes, Lord, may you be faithful to us. May you lead us as we look to you, God shepherd us, strengthen us, sustain us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.